Leaving a Legacy is brought to you by HipstersOfTheCoast.com and can be found on the Top Deck app every Friday. You can support the show directly at Patreon.com slash Leaving a Legacy. Magic is power. Welcome back, everyone, to a very, very special episode of Leaving a Legacy. Uh, I am your solo host today. Uh, unfortunately, with scheduling, uh, Pat could not make it tonight, but he sends his love to each and every one of you and is wishing you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Um, but we got an awesome episode tonight anyways, because continuing the tradition, making it Three years in a row, joining us tonight, the one and only Gavin Verhey. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm so glad to be back. I've got a nice roaring fire here, a, a cup of hot cocoa <laughs> in my hand, and ready to sit around the the living room and tell stories of tales and, and R&D. It's, it's going to be a great show. Actually, I look forward to this. I, I have to say, these guys are the only ones wise enough to reach out about doing a Christmas <laughs> Or holiday special, so it's fun to come on year in and year out, and just kind of have this great relaxed chat. And I feel like you and I have really built up a fun rapport. So hopefully, we get to continue yeah. that today. Well, I love it. So now that we're in year three, we're getting to the point where like some of the things that we alluded to and hinted at in the first year that you couldn't really talk about have finally seen the light of day, and we can have some uh, some fun lookbacks with that. Yeah, someone has to listen to all three of these episodes in rapid succession and see how things change between them. <laughs> I remember the first time we ever met Gavin, uh, we were talking and we were talking about Merfolk and you were just like, man, just you wait, Merfolk's going to be making a big comeback. And lo and behold, a couple months later, uh, Ixalan came out where Merfolk was a main tribe in it. And I got to see all the awesomeness that was uh, the Merfolk tribe. And I have to say my favorite brawl deck was the uh, the Merfolk deck. That thing is so much fun. Yeah, it was really cool hanging out at Grand Prix Richmond having you play that deck. You know, the, yeah. the, one of the questions I am asked most, this is, I'm not exaggerating, one of the questions I am constantly asked most, I get about well, at least one a month, um, that, that's, you know, off, like I get a lot of questions that are along the lines of, oh, what's it like, like to work at Wizards? But beyond that, when you get to the questions that I'm just repeatedly asked, I get asked a lot, Gavin, what is the merfolk you were hinting at on the Leaving a Legacy <laughs> podcast that you said was going to be really good because Ixlon came out and nothing got my Legacy merfolk deck? What gives? <laughs> Um, really that's one of the most asked questions i get asked that i mean yeah once you get you know below like the what i'll call right, the yeah. top tier of questions like how yeah. do you make a magic card is mark rosewater <laughs> yeah. cool you know that kind of stuff that is like one of the most asked questions and i get that one <laughs> constantly so you've got quite the well legacy pardon the pun but pun definitely intended <laughs> that's excellent have have we seen it what do you know what what the uh the alluded to merfolk was or has it not come out yet yeah you know it was just there are some merfolk and rivals of ixalan and ixalan that i i thought might have a better shot of hitting a legacy and they didn't didn't end up hitting so it's not a very satisfying answer listeners i gotta say <laughs> oh no but the you know the thing about working on on magic sets is we do focus on standard and limited but we try and make cards that have a chance to be played in modern and legacy and 
we 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 don't really have the bandwidth to super deep 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 test all the directions of those formats and with modern sometimes we, we will we'll let's say okay we're gonna try some stuff out in modern to make sure it's not broken but in legacy there's so many cards and so many interactions and the threshold to make mm-hmm. it in is so high that we kind of just try and you know put some stuff out there and see what happens and you know there were a few more folk in the Ixalan block we thought might have had a shot they didn't really make it in so I'm sorry I'm sorry that didn't happen you know, do you ever just like tear your hair out? You're reading like Reddit comment threads and some neck beards like well, Gavin never designs any cool legacy cards for me. And you're like, I designed so many. You guys just won't play with them. Well, this year I made Assassin's <laughs> Trophy. So I feel like I've done my good deed oh, for the year. Wow. I'm, I'm just going to pause with a round of applause from everyone listening at home because, yeah, you guys hit the nail on the head with Assassin's Trophy. That card, I think I think it might be my favorite card of the year. Uh, it was called Burst from Life in playtesting, and the only difference was when I designed it is it was a sorcery and could target your own things, so you could like rampant growth yourself if you wanted to. But, but play design put it through its paces and looked at it a little bit and was like, no, let's, let's try it at instant. And then they made the slight dock late um, in the design process to make it so that you couldn't target your own stuff, just because it was the best rule spell already. You were playing four copies in most of your decks. You didn't need to also randomly be able to rampant growth yourself sometimes, you know, and it still sees plenty of play. Yeah, well, we're jumping ahead a bit, but I think uh, Ravnica, just like the uh, original Ravnica and Ravnica 2.0, Ravnica seems to always be very friendly towards legacy players. We are seeing a lot of legacy playable cards coming out, including some that like probably weren't expected, like Risk Factor is actually seeing some play in legacy. I lost to it on uh, Magic Online last night in uh, Grixis Delver. They're starting to pick up Risk Factor. You know, I, I think that happens for a couple of reasons. One is Legacy's mana bases are perfect, so you mm-hmm. can splash in these gold cards at almost no cost. And the, yep. and the flip side is the whole, or the, not the flip side, but the other part of that equation is the whole thing about multicolored cards is they get to be stronger than normal cards because they're two colors. So you combine the fact that you have stronger cards that are basically free to play in Legacy because your mana's perfect, and you, you end up with a lot of cards that hit eternal formats like Legacy and Modern and Commander and and all that kind of stuff. And um, so what we know it's always a safe place to be able to make cards that hit. And when I made Assassin's Trophy, I was actually kind of thinking back to Abrupt Decay, which is another mm-hmm. card that, of course, hit in Legacy. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, the idea there was just a removal spell that's really hyper-efficient and because green and black can deal with basically every permanent in class. And making threats is really hard for older formats because you make a threat too strong and it, Blows up the whole format. Look at something like True Name Nemesis, for example, right? Where yeah. it's pretty. I, I would I would prefer if we hadn't made that card in retrospect. You know, it's pretty unfun. Um, right. But making answers is always pretty safe because the worst thing that's going to happen with a Path to Exile or Assassin's Trophy is you're just going to kill the card that's that you're, you cast, right? So it's pretty safe to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of that's kind of why maybe new Merfolk harder to make than new good removal spell true i've had this conversation with bob huang a couple times where it's just like there's no such thing as a too good of an answer like it, it, you can make things under costed and you can see things being you know maybe that's it's the end all be all removal spell but you know no one ever complained about swords to plowshares being in the format or fatal push or anything like that right. i mean usually if an answer is too good that just means you have an answer for something that could be even more problematic if that answer didn't exist yeah, I think the only time you run into trouble with answers is actually, and this is going to sound like the most Wizards of the Coast thing to say ever, but I'm just going to say <laughs> it, is when you run into counter spells. 
just because mm-hmm. counter spells can answer everything. And if they're efficient, right. it means that you can't ever land any of the things that will help take you back into the game. That's why you see things like, say, mental misstep being a problem, where it, just, it was what, an amazing counter spell. It completely defined the format, made entire classes of cards unplayable. Now, the free spell mechanic certainly had something to do with that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, counter spells are where we start to run into trouble. Yeah, well, with counterspells, I feel it's the psychology of it. Like, with a removal spell, it's like, all right, you played your thing, and I killed it. But you played it. With a counterspell, it's like, you didn't even get your thing. I'm just saying no right out of the gate. (laughs) So it's like, you didn't even have a hope of using this spell. At least with, like, a removal spell, you actually got to resolve it, and you had a joy for, like, 30 seconds before I said no. And, of course, with stuff resolving, you get all the ETB triggers and all that kind right. of stuff, right? Which can still means you can get value out of your cards where Counterspell shut it down. You know, we actually we did some testing in the office uh, with new players of game states where we would counter your spell versus game states where you would play a creature and we would just kill it immediately with a removal spell. And despite them being essentially fundamentally the exact same scenario... Counter spells had like a super super negative reaction where removal spells were just neutral. Like, yeah, it sucked that my guy died, but that's how the game works. So counter spells feel like cheating because you don't get to do the thing, even though it's almost fundamentally the same as a removal spell. That's that's really interesting. I know. So when we got dinner out in Seattle, we talked a lot about the psychology of game design, yeah. and prisoners' dilemma, and uh, the story. Actually, if you could tell, I think it's great. The um, like the mind game of a uh, like a bank robbery. Oh. I'm, I'm not going to do it justice. But. Oh well, there's this uh, there's a psychologist I really like who's done a lot of studies into what makes people feel lucky or unlucky, and something that he talks about is there's this. Uh, bank robbery example. So you're in a bank, which is now kind of an outdated example because, I mean, who goes into banks anymore? But anyway, <laughs> you're, you're in a bank and you're just minding your own business, doing cashing a check or, I don't know, whatever it is you were doing in a bank, probably wrestling with an ATM, and, and a bank robber comes in. And he fires two shots up into the, into the air to signal, hey, I'm a bank robber, by the way. And then he fires two shots and they hit you in the arm. And the question is, are you lucky or unlucky. And it kind of goes to to talking about mindset a little bit, because people, luck has a lot to do with how you think about things, like do you, like how you perceive the world around you. And people who perceive themselves as luckier would often say, oh, I was very lucky, like I just got hit in my arm, I could have gotten hit in my chest, you know, like I could have died. And then a person Mm -hmm. who perceives themselves as unlucky and often, or claims that they're an unlucky person, would say things along the lines of, uh, oh my gosh, I'm getting hit at all. I was in a bank at this time. I can't believe it. That's so unlucky, right? So it really has to do with perspective. Um, they ran actually another great test. I don't know if I told you this story or not, but where they would hand people newspapers and they would tell them they had a whole newspaper. They, they had like an entire gigantic newspaper and they would say, you've got 20 minutes to memorize as much of this newspaper as possible from front to back. And... The thing is, 20 minutes to memorize a newspaper is basically an impossible task. It's a huge newspaper. It can't be done. And the people who came into the test perceiving themselves as unlucky would just like, you know, get frustrated or not not bother trying or like start reading and then, you know, just like kind of give up. But the people who felt that they were lucky and actually started going through and reading the paper not only um, got through the paper in quick time because it was written in such a way. I believe it was written in such a way that it was it was actually like you know not as dense. But there are things hidden in the paper, like if you see this, raise your hand, and the test is over. We'll give you you twenty dollars, you know, things <laughs> like, like that. So they, they actually tried, and they're they're like, yeah, well, 
I, I probably am not going to do this. But maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe I can do it. And so it really has a lot to do with mindset. Um, and I don't know. I, I've always enjoyed that kind of look on things because it shows how much the way you think about something can influence how you the life life around you works and how you perceive yourself as being a fortunate or ill-fortunate person. I, I can definitely uh, speak volumes to that because uh, as many people would quickly tell you, I am terrible at magic. I am very bad. However, I view myself as being incredibly lucky. And even when I don't do well at a tournament, I still feel like I have a good time because I remember those times where, you know, I just blind ripped Emmercool off the top for the win. Even if I ended up the day going, you know, six and four, I'll remember that win I got just getting extremely lucky off the top. And I feel I have a much better time than I would say some of the kind of more serious grinders who, you know, maybe view themselves as very good at magic, but don't view themselves as unlucky. I feel when people lose the, oh, I had bad luck is probably the number one excuse other than maybe my opponent was more lucky than me, which is just a variation of it. When I was working on Dominaria, I had the great fortune of working with Richard Garfield, which was an absolute delight. Working with Richard was truly amazing. And, you know, at various points during our meeting breaks or things, I would talk to him about Magic's origination and things he did right and did wrong. And something he told me that will always stick with me is that the genius thing about Magic's design is when you win, you feel like a genius. It was all due to skill. And when you lose, you can just blame it on your deck. And <laughs> and that is the true genius of magic is that if you win, it's great. You're, you're a genius. If you lose, well, I just didn't draw the right cards. And that I thought was pretty amazing. And it's totally true, right? That's just that boils down so many interactions the players have. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, let's let's jump right into it. So I wanted to kind of talk about the sets that came out this year and – uh, I think we'll skip Rivals because that came out right in January. I feel we we talked about that a bit on the last show, and I feel it's it's, it's more in 2017 than 2018. Man, it's hard to think that was this year. It feels like so long ago now. I know. Well, it was it was January of 2018. Oh, that's so like that's like a whole year ago. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it feel, feels like just yeah. I still feel like New Phyrexia was yesterday. That's that's when I came back to Magic was New Phyrexia, and it still feels like oh, it was just the other day. Do you ever find that magic sets have this really strange quality where each one is simultaneously really recent and yet so long ago? Like I oh, think yeah. about I think about like New Phyrexia and I'm like, yeah, that was that was pretty recent in Magic's timeline. But wait, man, I've got such nostalgia for that set. That was so long ago, and my brain can't comprehend how it can both simultaneously be so recent and so old. Yeah, exactly. But I mean New exactly. Phyrexia was the second to last set that came out before I started working at Wizards. And I've been working on Wizards for over seven years now. So, I mean, it's, it's what, seven and a half years old or something? That's nuts. Right. And I always think about that. Like, um, So I, I played Magic, then I took a break, then I came back to Magic. And it's gotten to the point where I've played Magic, like coming back to it, for twice as long as I did when I first started playing Magic. Yeah, and yet I still, I still feel like that, when my first experiences with Magic, were so much more like, I don't know, just they have more weight to them. Like, I feel like there's more time that passed during that time frame, even though I am now like crossed over that halfway point and I'm, I'm increasing my continuation of magic beyond what it was when I originally started playing. I don't know if that made sense. I feel like I rambled a bit there, but hopefully you got it. No, it totally does. I mean, you can look at those numbers. A fun fact for me is I have now been playing magic in my life longer than the amount of time that I have not been playing magic. 
Yeah, that's Which another fun like, benchmark. Think about that for a second. <laughs> you have lived more playing this game than you have not lived playing this game. And I don't know many th- – that's, that's what I'm imagining about, about magic, right? I don't know many activities in life besides, like, breathing. Most people right. can say that for, that they've been doing this thing consistently, <laughs> thinking about it every week for over half of their existences on their planet, on this planet. That's just amazing. Um, I, I guarantee you there's quite a few people out there who their magic anniversary is a higher number than their wedding anniversary. I think that is, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm not married. So currently I've got that crush. I got a zero year yeah. wedding anniversary and I got yeah. 17 years of magic. So we're in good shape. <laughs> lots of, lots of catch up time. Yeah. It's going to be real. Someone when I get married, it's going to be real hard for that to, that to get a clip. <laughs> let me tell you. Listen, listen, I love you, baby, but you're no Jace. <laughs> Oh man. Um so uh so up next that came out this year, though I kinda wanna lump this in with uh the other master set that came out uh um uh, more recently is Masters twenty five came out in March. Um how do you feel do you have much role in designing the master sets or I feel you kinda don't really uh touch those that often? I don't see your name on the design the designers list that often for the master set, I feel. Yeah, I worked a little bit on Modern Masters twenty seventeen. And then the original Modern Masters, but it's kind of stayed out of, of the other ones. Um, you know, kind of as my role has evolved here at Wizards, I'm doing a lot more work on the, like, ancillary products, the Battle Bonds, the Commanders, and then the mainline set set launches. And so the Master sets have kind of been, worked, you know, handed off to other people. But I still play them. I play test them. I keep in mind kind of how they roll and how they work. And, you know, Masters 25 was, had, had a lot of good and bad going for it. You know, a lot of, a lot of cool things happened with it. We got to do the watermark gimmick that I thought was really neat where we printed a card from every set and then we had that watermark underneath mm-hmm. the, the text box that was really cool. Um, the draft format was something different. Every other master's draft format had been pretty on rails. Like, okay, I'm drafting these two colors. That means I'm Storm or something. Yep. And in Masters 25, you kind of go back to basics of you pick two colors and there's a lot of good cards in those combinations. You kind of find those mini synergies with horseshoe crab or whatever the card might be that gets you there. Mm-hmm. So that, that was pretty cool. And then we reprinted some cards. I, you know, I think I think that we what we learned a lot from was the amount and quality of reprints in Masters 25 was not as high as our player base wanted it to be. And so we really took our learnings from Iconic Masters, which was 2016, and Masters 25 when we went forward to get to um, Ultimate Masters, which just came out yeah. and has been a pretty gigantic success just because yeah. the reprints have been what players were asking for. And I'm really glad we got to kind of take our learnings and apply them toward that. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, for <laughs> for eight or nine months, I was just buffeted by people saying, y'all don't know how to make a master set. And in my head, I'm like, okay, just just be patient. Just wait. We're, we're going to get there. And it'll be <laughs> I okay. agree. Um, and it, it was kind of, you know, it worked out okay because, you know, uh, most sets work on a very long timeline. And it's very hard to change things late in the process. And master sets work on a slightly shorter timeline. So we were just able to take that feedback from Masters 25 and go forward and make a number of late changes to um, Ultimate Masters to give it the make it the set that it is today. Um, so we kind of set ourselves up for being able to give a layup on that one. Yeah, give it that oomph. I agree. I actually, uh, my right arm is resting on two boxes of uh, Ultimate Masters that I can't wait to draft. Well, aren't you so. posh? 
<laughs> so well one of them's pat one of them pats uh so i'm 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 holding on to it for him i'm gonna i'm gonna try weighing them see if one's a little bit heavier you know maybe that has the uh the more the better foils in it i'm thinking uh the, that's my uh my conspiracy tinfoil hat theory at least <laughs> yeah that's something uh, we always have to think about right we can't have packs that well anyway yeah, that's not very interesting <laughs> for the audience i'm sure but uh, the the waiting of packs because there are those min maxers out there who I remember that was back in the day um, there would be people who would like go into the store and some stores would like have the the packs out and people could choose their own packs and they'd be sitting there with two packs one in their left hand one in their right hand like trying to figure out which one weighs more because the theory was foils weigh slightly more I think it was all a placebo effect but uh, you know some people really take that to heart I remember someone who walked into my local game store with a scale i'm not not joking <laughs> and he, he it was for a different card game but he was buying packs of a different card game aimed at children's audiences and then was weighing the booster packs to figure out which ones had the premium cards and especially in some of, the, of these other games where there are fewer cards in them um the, the difference yeah. is all the more noticeable exactly that's crazy uh, but yeah, I think you guys definitely uh, knocked it out of the park with Ultimate Masters. I'm, I'm real excited for it. Um, going back slightly, the like you said, the gimmick of the watermark. Um, I know it would be super confusing for new players, but I almost wish that was the norm for all Magic sets. That whenever there was a reprint, it would have a watermark of the original set it was printed in. So when you're playing Legacy, do you see mm-hmm. a lot of players using these watermark versions? Because I've heard I've heard some people like them and some people don't like them. Do you have any thoughts or opinions from the legacy community on that? And I would love to hear, by the way, from any listeners, if you like playing with those cards or not in your decks. But, uh, yeah, what do you think? So, I mean, in legacy, original printing is king, really. Um, it's almost... I mean, there's definitely people who don't go with it, but it's it's kind of like the the accepted norm that the majority of the player base likes printing with original printings whenever possible. Now, sometimes budget and, and other factors, availability comes into play, and you know it's not possible to play with the original printing. And when that's the case, I do feel that people go for like the watermark, the more you know, little little added touches because it dis- it distinguishes it from just a a regular normal reprint. Um, I, I would say it's probably the second or third consideration for people. Definitely original printing first, and then after original printing, personal favorite art. And then if the art's the same, they'll go for that like watermark edition. Sure, sure. That's cool. Uh, but I, I personally like it. And I, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's something it, it, it gives weight to magic's history. It, it's that little something that's you know pretty easy to do. I mean, maybe it would confuse new players. Maybe it wouldn't. But even if it's like a new player is like, hey, I, what, what's this little marking for? And then that inspires them to go look up the history of magic and you know find out, oh, what's this like dragon eating its tail? Oh, there's this set called Torment. Oh, right. what's this about? <laughs> now, why is dragon eating its tail? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, I played during that, and I even I don't know why the dragon's eating its own tail. <laughs> so you know, you talk about. Uh, the original printing being king. I'm just curious. I'm not saying we're going to do this or anything. I'm just curious what your take on it would be. <laughs> a number of times people have asked, what if you ever just turn the printers on for an old set? You know, what if you just printed Invasion again mm. and put it out there? Like, I, uh, uh, yes, give me all the packs. Even if it's like for something like Invasion, which doesn't even have that much of like a reprint value, just that nostalgia of it. Uh, I would eat that up, like especially old border, like old printing is especially important for old border. Like when I say original printing, I mean old border original printing. If a card's first printing was already in a modern frame, that doesn't really hold true. It re- it really goes down to whatever your personal favorite art is. Um, it, when I say original printing, what I really mean by that is original frame. 
So my question then is, do you think that that it would be bad for all the collectors out there who and legacy players who've done so much work making their decks look awesome if it's like, oh, yep, Invasion is back on the presses, or I don't pick a set, is back on the presses, you can now just go get your identical copy of the you know old frame polluted deltas or something like that that some players worked so hard to acquire. How does I, I know Delta is an onslaught, not invasion, by the way, listener. But um, yeah, <laughs> how would you how would that make you feel? I would be ecstatic about it just because it's giving me a chance to you know get back out there. Like the thing is, people who might say that they're upset by that, if they go into a shop and that shop has a booster box of invasion on the shelf, they're ecstatic to buy those packs. Um, and I like. I know psychologically it, it's probably the same, but just the aspect of like increasing supply, lowering value. I don't. I've said this on on past uh, past casts before. I really don't hold much uh, respect for people who view magic as an investment. Magic is a game first and foremost, and if you're investing your life savings in this game, um, you know you shouldn't really be expecting anything else uh, other than you know something could happen where that investment might go down. I I think magic should be used as a game first and foremost, um, and decisions should be made based on that principle. Um, so personally, I, I would love it if you flip the flip the switch and turn the printer, printers on for an older set. All right, we'll throw it out there to the Leaving a Legacy community. Fire at me yeah. on Twitter uh, if you have thoughts on this. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, definitely. That that would be awesome. So this is always um, a, a hot topic of debate. Oh, once again, not saying we're doing it. I'm just always curious about what people think about it. Yep, yeah, and we're and also just to clarify, we're not talking about reserve list tier people. We're not. Yeah, we're yeah. not saying. I guarantee like you're not that, flipping those switches. Sorry. That is that is out the window. Don't don't even bother. We're talking about like pre-modern sets, post like basically from like Tempest to Mirrodin is kind of what I had in mind when you were talking about that. Is is that fair? Something like that. Yeah, or or, or you know even Innistrad or something. Right. You could pick a more recent set. Imagine we did like a Ravnica bundle that had a pack of every Ravnica set. You know, oh, yeah, that could be that, cool. That, that would be sweet. Um, you, you could draft oh, I mean, yeah. all the Ravnica sets at the same time. Yeah, pre pre made. I think I think the newer the set gets, the less people's aversion to that would be. Um, I think there's a big group of pe- players who would love to see uh, old frame, old card packs, and they would love to see those sets printed. And then I feel pretty much anyone would love to see these like older older uh, packs become more available because if you go to the specialty shops, you can still buy these booster packs, usually for a pretty decent markup. Um, but if you're the type of person that buys your cards from like Walmart or off off uh, Amazon, you know you don't really have that option of of getting that large selection. Like people love chaos drafts. Like if you made like chaos chaos draft fat packs where it was like a box of nine random booster packs for Magic's history, like that would be awesome. All right, well, people sound off. Let me know if you want it. Hey, I'm the guy to make it. My job now is figuring out what new product should be. So always looking for some new hot stuff in the future. Hell yeah. Um, going back, uh, so the first major, uh, you know, regular series, I don't know how to say, not specialty set, but a uh, regular series set, uh, that you worked on that came out in 2018 was, uh, Dominaria. Uh, I feel this was a really big success for magic. Yeah. I mean, I really can't say enough good things about Dominaria. I think it is one of the best sets we've ever released as a company. I think it is, mm-hmm. well, I don't just think it is. I know it is one of the most successful sets we've ever released as a company. And it's also just incredibly fun, and it does so many things on so many levels. It tickles new players. It tickles experienced players. 
There's great returning characters. There, there's mechanics that are very easy to understand and yet very deep. There's sagas, which do a cool thing with the card frame. It just kind of has everything. Plus, you have just that amazing, amazing nostalgia value of, yeah, we haven't done this thing in years. Let's turn the faucet back on and come and check out this world. I mean, it was unbelievable. Plus, the design team was just a full of home runs. I mean, Richard Garfield, Mark Rosewater, Aaron Forsyth, Kelly Diggs. Mm. I, some you know random guy named me was there. Um, <laughs> and I had such an amazing experience working on this side. It was really a labor of love. And to see it finally come out and to see everyone love it just as much as we put our heart and souls into it, that was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. For me, it almost felt like a master set in of itself because for me, like reprints are one thing. I, I have a pretty decent collection, so reprints are cool, but they're not what really get me going about a set. It For me, master sets, what I love the most is the nostalgia of them. And Dominaria had nostalgia off the scales. And I think we talked about this on a previous episode. You know, sometimes when you just go all nostalgia, like with Time Spiral, you end up kind of, uh, you know, uh, going a little bit overboard and it ruining the experience. Dominaria was super nostalgic, but was also just on its own an amazing set. Like I drafted so much Dominaria, so many Dominaria drafts. I've, I've spent hours and hours on. Yeah. We, we spent a long time trying to get that feel right. We invented something that um, Mark Rosewater calls lenticular design, lenticular being those images you can kind of look at from two different perspectives and see different things. And the idea there being that if you're a new player and you see a card like Lyra Dawnbringer or the Black Blade or something like that, you'll look at it and say, hey, that's a cool angel or that's a cool sword. But if you're a returning player and you see those cards, you'll say, oh, that's a reference to Dacon Blackblade. I get it. Or that's a reference to Rhea Dawnbringer. I get it, right? And no matter who you are, there's something there for you. And nestling that in references and little flavor text nods and things like that go so far as opposed to Time Spiral where you see, you know, your Cyclopean uh, horror or whatever and it's two Cyclopean mummies and a Cyclopean tomb (laughs) and the joke is, do you get it? And it's like, no, no one got this no. joke. And the set is just full of these ridiculous things that are impossible to comprehend. And that, to me, is the big, big fundamental difference between the two sets. And now I think Dominari is going to herald in a new age of design. More than any set I've ever been in, we came back after Dominaria and said, okay, how can we apply the learnings from Dominaria to our other sets in the pipeline. Like, what elements can we take from it? And you're going to see some of that start to come in. For example, you know, one thing we've talked about a lot, and here's something special for all you leaving a legacy post out there, or leaving a legacy folks out there, rather, is we're going to start doing more legendary creatures in our sets. We saw that was awesome with Dominaria. Commander players loved it. So that's one thing. just gives you more legends to play with. But also, there's something, even in Limited that's viscerally meaningful about having like a named person on your side. It's not just my random bear dies. It's, oh, man, th- you know, this green-white legendary creature with a name, Shana dies or whatever, right? And that actually just attaches you even further to the game, it makes it feel like it's this epic game with heroes running around, and, you know, it, it, that's super cool. So you'll be seeing a lot, a lot more of that, and <laughs> I'm uh, excited for you to discover what we all have in store 
Hell yeah. I will say, though, uh, there were a couple early drafts when the set first came out where uh, I might have timed out <laughs> because I was delving into the magic Wikipedia when I would see a card. I'm like, oh, wait, I kind of remember this. What's this? And then I would just go down a rabbit hole of magic Wikipedia articles learning about like the entire history of Daragaz. <laughs> to me, <laughs> that sounds like a massive success on all accounts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I loved every minute of it. My opponents on Magic Online, not so much. <laughs> like, what are you doing over there? Make your play. <laughs> Right, like, he's probably so frustrated, or your opponent is just so frustrated. Like, what's he doing? He must be really deep in the tank. What's going on? Yeah. And you're just sitting there, like, coffee mug in one hand, Wikipedia uh, mouse in the other hand, just reading through, ah, yes, on Tessier, back in the early era, this is what happened when Urza and Mishra fought. Yes. Yep. <laughs> So, yeah, um, Dominaria, I absolutely loved. Uh, could not get enough of it. My only criticism of Dominaria, Gavin, there was only one. You only gave me one. I was, like, so excited for the next set to be Dominaria 2, and it just didn't come. You couldn't, you did it to me. <laughs> well, so it's sort of a double-edged sword. So originally, Core Set too much of a good thing was going to be Dominaria 2. We're going to have two sets of Dominaria. Mm-hmm. And... We had started designing the second set, in fact, because they were both running in parallel. We had Dominaria 1 and Dominaria 2. And we realized that we needed to change our rotation and we needed to bring the core set back. And we talked about what the right way to go about it would be. For example, there was talk for a long time of maybe Dominaria 2 would just be the core set but have Dominaria flavor because Dominaria is kind of like a neutral world anyway. You know, you could do a lot of things on Dominaria and often core set cards are set on a Dominaria. Mm -hmm. So we talked about it. And eventually we decided we'll just do the one Dominaria set. But the good news about that is it meant all the good designs we had in the second Dominaria set, we got to cram into the first set. So the first set is partially so awesome. The Dominaria set you all have seen is partially so awesome because we got to take what two design teams had done and jam it together to get all the best pieces. <laughs> so that was pretty all cool. Right. I I'll, I guess I can accept that. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, originally, yeah. you know, there was going to be more like Night Tribal and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well, what if we just do a little bit of that in the first set? And ultimately, I think it was really cool that you kind of have this Wizards and Knight tribal thing just running around in the background. Dominaria yeah. feels so great because <laughs> it's like there's so many cards and so much to explore. There's these little sub-themes you can build and these tribal decks you can try and Sapperlings are here and all that kind of stuff that just makes it feel ultra cohesive and fun to play with. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I loved all the little sub themes. I love that Wizards had its own sub theme. Uh, what was your favorite card that you I mean, doesn't even have to be the card that you designed. What's your favorite card in Dominaria? Wow. I that, know. Hard question. That is a loaded question. <laughs> Jeez. Um, you know, my favorite card to play with in Dominaria is probably Moldrotha. It's just, when you cast that, it's, it's not like a legacy card. It's not even a standard card or anything. Uh, but when you cast it and untap with it, you just feel unbeatable. Like, you're recasting stuff out of your graveyard. You get so much value. S- same thing with, like, Tadiova, too. I just love these legends that give you absurd amounts of value. Um, so those are two of the picks off the top of my head. You you say that, but I have seen Moldrotha resolved in legacy games, in sanctioned legacy tournaments. I've seen Moldrotha, Moldrotha on the on the play, uh, the play field. I don't know who you are, um, my friends, but I want to know you. So, <laughs> uh, Bug Nickfit, Bug Nickfit loves their Moldrotha. Oh sure, yeah, you could reanimate that thing, reanimate it, and then just get super value. Oh, right. Also, um, like your explorer dies, you're up two lands. Like it's easy to get up to six mana that way. Sure. Yep. Sure. 
So, um, Muldrotha had seen a little play. What is seeing a bunch of play in uh, Legacy, which I really like. In fact, I don't know if you saw, but we had uh, tokens made for the podcast. And for my token, I have uh, Karn, Scion of Urza tokens. Um, I really liked Karn uh, in this set. Do you ever get worried about, you know, making a Planeswalker? Um, you know, after I know they're Jace casts a heavy shadow, um, but, you know, a four mana colorless planeswalker when Papa Papa Karn is already kind of a uh, hot spot in modern. Was there any worries that Karn might have been a little too pushed? Well, it's funny. I almost said Karn for my favorite card in the set. Uh, I, 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 I thought of Muldrotha <laughs> right afterwards. Karn took a really long time to get right because you're absolutely correct. A four mana colorless planeswalker could be format destroying if done properly. <laughs> right. As we saw recently with Kaladesh and Mirrodin and Scars of Mirrodin and Urza Block and every artifact set because we always mess those up and get cards banned in standard. Literally, the only cards banned in standard have been when we've done artifact blocks in the past like 15 years or whatever. <laughs> oh, um, that's, yeah, that you pointed out, that's true. Yeah, it's just we always get it wrong. <laughs> One of the big problems is that artifacts can go into any deck. Mm-hmm. So the best ones just end up getting played everywhere. Smuggler's Copter, for example. Well, what deck wants Smuggler's Copter? Any deck with creatures wants Smuggler's Copter. (laughs) And Karn could have been a disaster because maybe every control and every aggro and every mid-range deck plays Karn. Fortunately, you know, we put a lot of work and a lot of elbow grease and rigor into it to come to where we are right now. And I think it turned out into a really good spot where it gets you some cards, but it's not a card advantage machine. Like, it will, you know, give you the lesser of two cards every turn. It can make some creatures, but it's not, like, hyper-efficient at at killing your opponent or anything. Um, But even then, in its current state, it was probably one of the top three cards we were worried about when Dominaria was released. It was, like, Mox, Amber, and Karn were probably the top two cards if I had to just pick two. And it's just those colorless cards Fortunately, I think Karn ended up in a great spot. I'm glad that he's showing up a little bit in Standard, a little bit in Modern, and a little bit in Legacy. But let's keep him at that at that little bit amount. Not too much, Karn, please. Yeah, not too much. I, I think it, I think uh, Karn is in a good spot. Um, it's seeing a healthy amount of play in Legacy. It kind of revolutionized the mono-red prison lists, uh, made them much more competitive. Um, I mean, they are already pretty competitive, but that kind of just tipped him over the edge, and we actually saw mono-red prison dominate for a while in Legacy. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, Karn hit a good balance. Uh, moving right along, another set that you had a pretty heavy hand in, uh, Battle Bond, which I also really liked. Hey, I kind of call it the Summer of Gavin, which is yeah. very, <laughs> very self-centered, I suppose. But also, you can be self-centered when it's true. Because I it, right in a row, I had Challenger decks, then Dominaria, then Commander Anthology two, then Commander twenty eighteen, and Battle Bond that were all, not in that order, but in some mix of those orders, that were all my projects that all came out in like a five-month window or six-month window or something like that. And (laughs) just because of how the timing worked out, they all launched. It was really cool to see a bunch of my stuff come out one after another. Uh, Battle Bond means so much to me. I mean, this is the set that I feel the most attachment to. Just the number of hours I spent working on that thing, hammering on it, getting it, getting it into shape, finding reprints, working on new cards, figuring out how to make this format work. It was, I mean, it's just astounding. I would, so many nights, I would just stare at the ceiling because Battle Bond was on my mind. And then to see it finally come out, and it's sort of like the first time you show your baby to the world, you know? And to have it mm-hmm. finally come out, and everyone just love it. And I've heard so many stories from 
friends who got back into the game through it or significant others that started playing through it or people who just op opening up really exciting cards and building commander decks around them. To me, this is probably the single thing that I'm the most proud of working on at Wizards is Battle Bond. I, while Dominaria certainly is incredibly successful and is frankly a, a better set than Battle Bond is, Battle Bond is the one that I am the most proud of and that I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, definitely. And uh, would you say, I know uh, Mark Rosewater talks a lot about like top-down versus bottom-up uh, design. It, would you say Battle Bond was more of a top-down design where it was more flavor-focused, or uh, am I getting that wrong? Well, you know, it's, it's funny in that it sort of has like this U-pattern of bottom-up to top-down um, mm -hmm. to, yeah, but basically how it worked was <laughs> we wanted to do a two-headed giant draft format, and no one knew what that meant. <laughs> like we knew what that we knew what that was like in mechanical terms and no one knew what it meant and so we asked creative to come up with some ideas after we'd kind of borne it out and they came back with okay we've got this world of two on two fighting and so on and so forth and then from that idea a lot of flavor came out of it and we got the things like the duo pairs we got you know all these great two two headed stuff there's actually a literal term we used when working on the creative for the set was twosy of having things where there were just lots of twos in the artwork because we wanted to play up the two so much. And looking back on it, you know, we did a very similar thing for Conspiracy where we said, hey, we have this weird, wacky multiplayer draft format, creative, what do you think this could be? And they came back with this, you know, subterfuge, Game of Thrones-esque plotting world. And then we made a lot of cool cards based out of what, what that was. So it was really a, a team effort, I have to say, of creative coming up with a great theme and then me and my team just making all kinds of awesome resonant tropes based on the twosiness and the arena fighting, almost wrestling world of the of the Kylum. And a cool thing about Kylum, by the way, is all we've seen in that world really is the arena. There's so much yeah. more to see, and someday I think we'll get to see the rest of it. Ooh, maybe a standard set going to Kylum? Maybe, that, maybe. That'd be cool. Uh, last time you were on, I gushed about it, and I don't think it's any secret my favorite card from the set, Arcane Artisan. Um, love that card so much. But uh, what what's your favorite card from the set? Oh man, the, this <laughs> one is truly, truly, literally like choosing between my children because I just love. <laughs> I there's so many cards in this set that I love, and if you ask me on a different day, I I might pick. But I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and pick two cards, but it's appropriate. And sure. that's Pure and Toothy, the green and the blue uh, partner pair. And I'm choosing oh, them yeah. because they were kind of the the thing that I held up throughout the entire design of, hey, this is what we want the set to be about. Like, this is a perfect example of it's two people fighting next to each other. It's a fun, lighthearted trope. It's, it's a you know, really fun design. Um, it, it's reminiscent of things you knew from your childhood and, and other esports out there. So mm -hmm. that pair means a lot to me, and I, I really deeply enjoy it. Um, you know, there's, there's some – the one card that I think players would know a lot more if, uh, if we hadn't added a mana at the last minute – is a stunning reversal. I don't know if you know what this card does, but uh, it's um sounds familiar. It's three and a black for an instant, and it says if you would lose the game this turn, instead your life total becomes one and you draw seven cards. And oh yeah, like the last change we made to the set really was adding a mana to that card at play design's recommendation, and they were probably right for doing so, um, mm -hmm. because they were actually worried about legacy impact. Of all you had to do was leave up a single black mana and you could go dark ritual this. So like you're playing against someone, you're a storm combo deck, they attack you for lethal and you draw seven cards instead and then you untap and of course you go off. 
So maybe that I, I don't know that it would see more play. I don't know that it'd see any play at three mana, but it's definitely the one where I, I love the design. Everyone who saw that design loved it. Like instead of losing the game, you get to draw seven cards. That's super cool. Um, and it's so flavorful too. It's like yeah. this person hanging hanging off like by their fingertips, and they still manage to pull themselves up. <laughs> I uh, it's funny where inspiration comes from. I was at GDC, and I was listening to a GDC talk from the makers of Rocket League, who talked about how they implemented this thing where the game doesn't end even when the timer hits zero until the ball touches the ground. So no matter what happens, you always have like a dream you could come back and get the ball in the goal. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know what Magic should have? It should have some more cards that like you, you get one final shot to get there. And so I submitted a few first sets, and none of them made it through. But then when I was leading my own set, I was like, okay, it's finally time. Finally time to get one of these in there. And I put it in, and I think it's a really fun card, even though it ultimately didn't end up showing up in any kind of constructed format. It's pretty that's fun. Pretty, that's pretty cool. No, that reminds me of, have you ever played the game, We Didn't Play Test This Game? I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, I, I feel that was a game definitely designed by magic players because it feels very magic-like. And they actually have a card in that game where uh, it's like an instant, and it's if you would lose the game this turn, instead you win the game this turn. <laughs> And that's that's kind of what uh what you were telling about Rocket League, what just inspired me, just like the, these mechanics that uh just can totally flip it, uh from what from what uh you're expecting to happen, and that kind of stuff's really fun. It's great to create these dramatic moments, and I'd love to see more things like that. Maybe we will eventually. But, you know, speaking of legacy, like Battle Bond had some hits too. There's not only Arcane yeah. Artisan, but Brightling showed up a little bit, which was pretty sweet. Yep. Uh, Arena Rector is still seeing play. Um, there's been some uh, Nick Fit lists with uh, Arena Rector finding uh, Planeswalkers like uh, Karn and Ugin and putting them into play. Um, then plus, I mean, there was also just a lot of uh, really good reprints in it. I mean, I feel legacy players more than almost any other. F- Actually, that's not true. Modern players can get pretty loud about reprints. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel Bottle Bond was really well received by the legacy community. My favorite on, on, my favorite reprint in the set, not close, is True Name Nemesis. Because it's oh, finally yeah. the format where printing that card makes sense. And it's actually a fair card. <laughs> True. I, I actually should probably like write uh, Lee Sharp in an apology because I was giving him uh, a hard time about them taking True Name Nemesis out of treasure chests on Magic Online. And I can just picture him just like, I can't tell you this, but it's going to be reprinted in a set coming up. So just so cool your jets. <laughs> um, so I'm, if you're listening, Lee, I'm sorry I gave you a hard time. I, if I only knew it was coming down the pipeline. <laughs> Which is... How I feel about my job 80% of the time. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Just be patient, you know. That's (laughs) right. It's so interesting seeing the whole scope of magic for the next seven or eight years all happening at once around you because that really is how it goes a lot of the the time. People will say, hey, why haven't you done X? And in reality, the answer is just we are doing X. You just haven't seen it yet. And it can be hard. It can be really hard sometimes to have that be the answer because, you know, I can't really tell you when it's coming. And to you, it's not very satisfying for me to say, yep, I hear your complaints, but that's just how it has to be. So that's one of the and you, the great curses. You can't even acknowledge and say, yes, we're fixing it, because that in and of itself gives it away. <laughs> you know, the, 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 I think what I always like to do is with any problem that people present to me is just, yeah, you know, we, we know about that. And something I think that um, some players may not understand is we voraciously listen to feedback and read Reddit and read Twitter and all this stuff. And if there's something that people are complaining about, 
we've almost certainly heard about it, at least if it's a, a large enough group complaining. And it's not that we don't know some of these things, but just that it takes time to act on them sometimes. So if there's things that you're worried about or things that you want to see happen or even things that we think we, we might not be doing, I guarantee that we've at least heard about them. Now, whether or not we act on them, that's a different story entirely. But I can guarantee you that we at least know about them uh, because we do hear everything that you're saying. So always feel free to send that feedback in and know that it is being heard. I read every tweet I'm sent. I read every email I'm sent. I read Reddit way too much. And it really all does get back up to the to the top. Definitely. Um, moving right along, as much as I would love to talk about Battle Bond all day. Um, up next, we had Corset 2019. I just feel like corsets are like the redheaded stepchild of magic. Like we recognize that they are needed. They are necessary for a, a healthy standard format. But then people almost seem like like not just ungrateful. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it just ungrateful for corsets. I, I really liked uh, 2019, but I feel it was kind of a hard, hard to live up to coming off of Dominari and Battle Bond um, for, for 2019. You know, I think Corset 2019 is one of the best corsets we've made. You've got all those Elder yeah. Dragons poking around, which is super I cool. I love the dragons. And also, I'm not like super into the Vothra. Well, I mean, I'm into Vothra, but I don't like read the stories all the time. Like, But I read every single one of the 2019 stories like i loved reading about like the history of ugin and nicol bolas and um you know how how they came about and uh, there's also one thing we decided was okay we're gonna bring back the corset we know this appeals to new players and it's for new players and it should be for that at the common uncommon level but let's try something new at the rare and mythic level, let's seed in a couple cards that are really just targeted at eternal formats. And so you, there was a few cards that were made that, you know, I, I know see some legacy in modern play, like Isolate and um, whatever the single black mana destroy colorless creature card is. Um, mm-hmm. They both got reprinted, and, 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 or they go, got printed for the first time. And then there's a few other reprints that we put in targeting eternal formats just to help add a little bit of oomph to making everyone care about the set. Because what we don't want is just, hey, everyone, corsets coming out. N- time for new players to come and check it out. Everyone else forget about this. No, no, no. It- it's a real magic set. Pay attention. And we're going to make sure there's stuff in this set for you, just like every other set. So uh, I-, I think we made some great strides there. And going forward, we've got a lot of ideas of how to improve that in the future. Definitely. Um, I think Isolate should have been Phyrexian Mana. I would have liked to see that. Oh, Gavin. Gavin, geez, little, man. <laughs> little, little callback to mental misstep. <laughs> Phyrexian mana is not on my high list of things to bring back. Especially, there's some things that you, you can do right with Phyrexian mana, but especially not Phyrexian mana when it's the only mana in the mana cost. That is just a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, uh, what was your uh, your favorite card? In, I think I can I take a guess. Actually, can I guess, Gavin? I, I think your favorite card was Chromium. Uh, I, I know it. I think you might have gotten your dragon wrong. My favorite. Card oh, I think I got is Arcades. No, what, what's the Arcades? I'm sorry, Arcades. Right. I yes. love Arcades. I built a brawl deck around <laughs> Arcades. I was playing at the <laughs> brawl championship in Richmond, but just so much fun. I've always loved the defender style of gameplay, door in the siege tower, etc. And mm. you just get to cantrip through your deck playing all these goofball defenders. I love that card. So that is my favorite card in Core 2019. That's a new card for sure. Is Arcades and. I know many out there would agree with me. I've seen a lot of Arcades decks out there. In fact, I went to the Philippines recently, which was a fantastic experience. The Magic players there were phenomenal. I had a, an amazing time. And 
there was this new phenomenon that I had never had happened to me before because people from Wizards so seldom go to the Philippines. And granted, it's not like we're out gallivanting around all the time. I guess only I do that. But, you know, there's plenty of times that we'll go to Europe or Japan or whatever for an event. But the Philippines, basically no one from rent an office is ever out there. And so I would go visit these stores. And I visited six stores while I was there for fun, just meeting players and talking with people. And I would be asked to sign cards. But the difference between here and everywhere else in the world was that normally people just want me to sign the cards that I've made. And the Philippines would hand me a card to sign, and I would say, oh, no, no, I didn't make this one. And they're like, oh, th- whatever, that's fine, just sign it anyway. <laughs> and one of the cards I signed the most in the Philippines was actually Arcades. And I felt, okay, well, I played with this card a lot, at least I feel fine signing it. But, uh, yeah, that, that was really an unusual experience for me. I mean, I'm always happy to sign cards if you want me to. And I even better if it gets to be a cool card like Arcades, I guess. Oh, man, I'm having you sign my Assassin's Trophies next time I see you. Oh, yeah, I've, I've signed a number of those, a number of Assassin's Trophies. You know what I just learned, by the way? This is how, how wild working Magic R&D works. So uh, earlier this week, actually, just yesterday, in fact, I was looking over a bunch of old documents because I was trying to fill a hole for a set that I'm working on. And there was a, another card that I was thinking of and I wanted to go back and get the wording right. And I never found that card. But what I did find was I found a bunch of my Shadows over Innistrad hole-filling designs. And I realized that I was the person who designed Declaration in Stone. And I had just oh, forgot. Really? I had just <laughs> forgot I ever designed that card. Like I sent it in, the lead put it into the file, and I just straight up forgot I made that card. That's how wild working at Wizards is. You will make cards that are played and tournament staples and then forget that you made them. <laughs> so now I gotta. Now I'm thinking like, oh, what else did I make that I forgot about? I gotta make, I sh- at some point, I should just make a list of all the cards I've ever made, and then I can just send that over to people. But ma- maybe there you something. Go. <laughs> awesome. Uh, one last thing about uh, Corset 2019. Personally, I loved it the most because I have a cube, which is uh, the true Elder Dragon Highlander, um, where before drafting your cube deck, you actually draft a uh, Elder Dragon as your commander. And I love 2019 because I love that you gave me five new uh, Elder Dragons to play around with. And to me, that's a great example of the lenticular design thing from Dominaria I was speaking about earlier. Where to a new player, there's just five awesome three-color dragons. And <laughs> yeah. to an experienced player, it has this incredible, incredible history. So you're going to be seeing a lot more of this lenticular design philosophy in the future for sure. Hell yeah. I'm excited because I, I think it's it's a really good design theory. Um, real quick, because I also want to get to our listener questions. Um, up next, we have Guilds of Ravnica. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Guilds of Ravnica. Um, I am so happy to have this set out, and it means a lot to me because the first set I really started playing competitively, and I've been playing before, but the set that really kickstarted me into competition, I think I top eight like eight PTQs or something of the format, was original Ravnica. Mm-hmm. And then Return to Ravnica was the first set that I worked on when I got to Wizards. So... Getting to work on Guilds of Ravnica and having it come all the way back around full circle is just a delight. Because now I get to touch it with all the experience of the past many years that I've worked at Wizards. And I love how it turned out. I mean, it's the same old Ravnica that you love with this kind of new noir autumn twist. There's some new mechanics, a lot of great stuff, some great flavor happening in the background. And 
I mean, I know it's, this is leaving a legacy, not leaving a standard. But frankly, the standard environment is the best right now it's been in years. So mm. I just am so happy with how this set came together. And there's all kinds of sweet individual cards with it. This set is great. Ravnica Legions has a lot of cool stuff coming out. And then the third set, Codenamed Milk. Uh, y'all don't even know what you're in for yet. That set is wild. Uh, you will. I, ca- I can't wait until we pop the lid on that one. You are going to have your minds blown. I can't wait. Now, Gavin, if I got into a time machine and went back to when uh, Ravnica was being designed, and I told you that one of the most legacy playable cards in the entire set was Arclight Phoenix, what what would you have said to me? <laughs> You know, I don't think we would have been that surprised. We knew, really? okay, yeah, we knew it was going to be a standard card for sure. Like we knew it was cr- incredibly powerful and standard. And uh, it's always funny too when you release a set and you start reading people's comments because we showed off Arclight Phoenix. I remember reading through the thread of why is this a mythic? Three spells is impossible. Why wasn't it two spells? You know, all this stuff. <laughs> and, if, and we're just all there sitting in R and D, like, all right, well, just you wait, give it a few weeks and see. So we knew it was a standard card, and we had a hunch it could be a modern card. Like we didn't, we didn't try it a ton in modern or anything. But we we knew with you know all the one mana cantrips it could be good, and then naturally that like extended to well it could be a legacy card I guess, but we're not not trying that out. So the fact that it is is sweet, and frankly it's the decks that it's produced in legacy it looked pretty fun to me. So. Yeah, uh, I've been loving the Arclight Phoenix Creeping Chill Legacy decks, and you're like, not only is it like playing with a standard new card, it's playing with two standard new cards from the same set spawning spawning new decks. You know what you don't it's, need? Uh, mana. Who needs mana? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forget. Uh, who was it? Uh, some streamer was streaming their uh, Arclight, Arclight Chill Dredge deck, and it just looked like a ton of fun. Um, and the Delver decks, uh, have been playing just regular Arclight Phoenix, Arclight Delver is what it's been going, uh, been known as. And, um, I've played against it a few times and that thing can really pour out the hurt. Um, a lot of damage really quick. Um, I think what everyone was talking about when, uh, these decks started to crop up is, man, imagine if Gataxian Probe was still legal. Yeah. Arclight Phoenix. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> now, now that banning might even make more been, sense than before. Yeah, uh, real good. Let's touch on that. I, I was going to talk about that later, but now feels like a good time. Um, what big thing we talked about at that dinner out in Seattle was, um, you know, possible bannings. And you were saying that, you know, if you could ban any card, it would be Gataxian Probe. And a couple months later, um, we see the Gataxian Probe ban. And, you know, you really I, I was always kind of 50-50 on Gataxian Probe, but you made some really good points as far as just Gataxian Probe is bad for gameplay of magic. You know, it, it strips away a, la- a layer of game play can you can you expand on that a bit yeah well so in addition to just being an incredibly powerful magic card which it is i mean mm-hmm. it's a free spell that cantrips and gives you an, an advantage and of course just drawing a card doesn't just mean drawing a card because it also means you get to up your storm count or help bring you back your phoenix or whatever right and legacy it has so many other applications but the other thing about Gataxian and probe is it just strips some of the fun out of the game because a huge part of the fun of magic is not knowing what your opponent has and being able to just see what they have for free really reduces the amount of interplay back and forth. Like with a combo deck, it's always kind of this, this interplay of, okay, do they have the counterspell? Do they not? You know, with a control deck, it's what are they holding in their hand? And, and Probe just with for the cost of literally nothing, basically nothing, either two life or a blue mana, whichever you have available at the time, just obviates all of that. Um, and that kind of stuff, it's just not super fun. And looking at hand effects are generally not incredibly fun anyway. So 
I'm happy to see that one get the axe. And it didn't get the axe for that reason, but it definitely didn't help its case. You know, we're always a little more lenient toward cards that are really fun to play with. Like, um, you know, Brainstorm is a great example. Like, Brainstorm is clearly too strong, but people love playing with Brainstorm. It's the cornerstone of Legacy, you know, and it's not going to go anywhere. Where Probe is both incredibly powerful and also, I think, taking fun away from the format. So I- I'm happy to see it go for one. Although I'll note I had almost nothing to do with it, so... <laughs> yeah, I always I always like to give that uh, that disclosure because I feel uh, you being a very public member of uh, Wizards R and D, um, you tend to get flack for stuff. Or like I see people give you flack. I'm like, Gavin has no like control over this. Like, <laughs> you guys need to chill out. Right? You know, it's just me, Rosewater, and Aaron Forsyth in a room making all the decisions. That's how everything works. <laughs> yeah. It's just us. No, I mean, it's in, literally in reality, the room where it happened. <laughs> In reality, R&D is, I don't know, a 60, 70-person team, lots of people working on a lot of really important things, and it's the play design team that ultimately comes up with the banned and restricted announcements, and they can be informed by other people. People can come back and, and tell them things, um, but that doesn't mean they're going to act on it. Like, for example, in Modern right now, I find, I find the Krark Clan Ironworks deck heinous. I'm mm. Watching this deck play is super frustrating to me, not because it, it takes forever, Although that's annoying too, but just the interactions that it uses that seem to break the game rules, like, okay, we're going to announce the spell and then sacrifice these two things uh, as a mana ability so that they can return the other is just like completely heinous to me and the game shouldn't work that way. But that doesn't mean I get to tell play design, you ban this. It's, hey, I just told play design <laughs> that this is a thing that frustrates me and then they just take that into account, you know? So if everything that I wanted to be banned or unbanned was banned or unbanned, our formats list would look a lot different than they look right now. Mm, definitely. Um, so another card that's seeing legacy play, uh, which also has a super cool mechanic, uh, risk factor. Um, can you talk about kind of how jumpstart came about and as kind of this like weird cousin of flashback? Yeah. Jumpstart was a, was a real trick to get right. Some of the mechanics that were handed off from design came across and just stuck. For example, Mentor was the same in design as it was in development and play design. It just stuck the same exact way. Is it took a lot longer to get right. We tried a lot of is it mechanics. <laughs> so many is it mechanics. Um, you know, we started with uh, splice on instant or sorcery, if you can believe it, in early design. Um, <laughs> and then we tried, we just tried so many different things. And, and, and then we tried this mechanic where... Um, I remember one one that I liked a lot that we tried was if you had played another spell this turn, you could play it for cheaper. So it encouraged you to like have a flurry of spells all in one turn, Ooh, right? Um, that doesn't sound dangerous at all. And then just another ability that was if you played another instant or sorcery this turn, you get a bonus. So that was kind of cool. And then it encouraged you to play your spells in the same turn together. So we tried a lot of stuff. And in the, in the end, you know, what we did was we looked at all the other mechanics we were playing with and what might play well with them and realized that dumping stuff in the graveyard was really nice for what, what was going on with blue-red, blue or with blue-black, rather, surveil. And so we thought, okay, well, let's come up with something. Boros always needs more gas, and so is there a way that we can kind of make a thing that's, that can turn your extra lands into gas? And, well, we came up with Jumpstart as a variant. And I'll admit, I was a little resilient at first because... I didn't like the idea of is it having a graveyard mechanic when Golgari is the color that's all about the graveyard. Mm-hmm. But in reality, no one really ended up caring about that. And the uh, the mechanic plays pretty well. It's a fun take on flashback. Definitely, definitely. 
Um, other cool man, I'm <laughs> there's so much to talk about because there are actually so many legacy playable cards. Um, I don't know if you you knew this, Gavin, but so we have the leaving a legacy open, and the trophy for the open is the winner chooses a MVP card from their deck, and that card gets encased in uh, plexiglass as part of the trophy. And the winner uh, of the most recent Legacy Open, uh, our friend Ross, um, he won with Grixis Delver, and his MVP card was Mission Briefing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. It, um, so the game-winning play with it was he cast Mission Briefing targeting the Force of Will in his graveyard, and because it's not actual flashback, it's cast from your graveyard, he could use the alternate cost on Force of Will to counter the game-winning Ad Nauseum from the Storm player. Um, so mission briefing became his MVP card, uh, for the trophy. So, uh, how did, how did that kind of design take shape? Do you know? Well, first of all, I'm glad that he's playing it because we, we thought that was going to be a little more of a standard player than actually it ended up being. So it's cool to see that it's showing up still in a constructed format. Um, yeah, mission briefing, I mean, to pile onto what I was just saying earlier, it was especially like, okay, so wait, so Golgari cares about the graveyard. And is it cares about the graveyard? And then like Demir's thing cares about the graveyard with this with this one really <laughs> powerful card. Okay, but you know um, we were thinking about what is good with putting things into your graveyard, and of course you can reanimate things that you put into your graveyard with surveil, or you can bring them back to your hand or what have you. But another thing is just casting them right out of your graveyard, and that's kind of where the idea came from, and also led to infinity boxers or brief jokes from Andrew Brown every time he cast that card. He's, he calls it, like, mission boxering, and then he's like, oh, I prefer boxers over briefs, and it's just, I've heard that joke so many times now. Anyway. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, but that's kind of where the card came from, and I, I think it's a strong card, and as standard evolves, I think we might see more of that card, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it is seeing play in Legacy. I know uh, a couple combo players are testing with it. It seems to have found its best uses in Grixis Delver because being able to get that alternate casting cost on your Force of Wills and Dazes. And um, Ross, we actually had him on the cast after he won the tournament, and he was talking about kind of how mission briefing really helps a tempo game plan uh, that Delver uh, wants to stick close to the ground with. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, mission briefing um, can see a bit more play than it is currently. Yeah, I mean, Snapcaster Mage is a powerhouse, and this is, I mean, it's it's no Snapcaster Mage, but it is a spell, so it flips your Delvers, which is nice. And, uh, yeah, I think it's totally playable. Yeah. Um, Probably what card that had one of the biggest impacts on Legacy, uh, especially for the non-blue decks, is Knight of Autumn. Um, People are loving this card. Uh, Modal cards, it turns out, are pretty popular. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is kind of one of the first in a long train, but you will start seeing some more modal cards um, with the prevalence of Arena because Arena has best of one as a major game feature and making sure that your main deck has answers to artifacts and enchantments and the like is really important. And Night of Autumn partially came out of that, knowing we would want uh, best of one hate cards to exist in people's main decks. And it's also just a, you know, a great flavorful, or at least mechanically flavorful, as in it's, it's very green and white feeling card uh, on top of it. Huh, so so Night of Autumn was specifically designed with Arena in mind, or am I drawing too much conclusion from that? I mean, I, I don't know that I could say it was 
specifically designed with Arena in mind, but when looking at cards to make strong and as an effect we want to exist, we're really happy having this one exist. I, I didn't make this specific card, and I wasn't um, part of the discussion around it, so I don't know exactly all the details of how that came to be, but when we were working on Guilds of Ravnica, we were very actively thinking about Arena's best of one and trying to make sure there were answers to things in there, and as you see more standards that come out, you will see more cards that help make sure best of one matches have play back and forth. Mm. Well, so addressing the elephant in the room and speaking of things that you have no control over, but you get blamed for anyways, um, kind of a big hot button issue in the community right now is arena and best of one. And I think people are just afraid that magic as a standard will move to the best of one format and, you know, best of three will completely disappear. You know, is, do you see that ever happening? Can you, is there, as a designer, are you just completely ignoring best of three matchups? You know, is there anything you can kind of tell people to put their mind at ease on that yeah we have no plans to get rid of best of three in paper tournaments at all i mean there's it's very different on arena playing having a quick gameplay experience is really important because you want to be able to sit down play a game you got to go do something else you can leave or frankly just play a bunch of games in a row it's it's probably when you're on your computer playing by yourself it's a lot more fun i think to just jam through three or four different matchups than to play the same matchup for an hour you know when you're playing best of three but with that said, in a tournaments feature in, in real life magic, we don't want best of one to, or be, we don't want, want best of three to go anywhere. It's it's super crucial. Sideboarding is important. There's a lot of strategy at the high level. And, you know, there's a lot of, you're not really getting anywhere that much faster because tournaments will have a lot of other logistics to deal with, you know, like um, games will go on super long in a control matchup. And if you're a beatdown player, that's still going to mean that, that you're waiting around for the next round to start, you know? So, no, we have no plans to change that in paper tournaments at all. We just thought it would be the best gameplay experience for Arena. Um, with that said, of course, the caveat is I don't work on the Arena team at all, so they're working on all kinds of stuff. Now, they do ask us for our opinions, and we interface very closely with them, but I'm not one of the R&D liaisons with Arena, so I don't actively work on that. The way I see the magic community reacting right now is it feels like uh, old, like big brother, new baby syndrome where, uh, you know, there's a new baby in the house, which is arena and we're feeling less attention. We're feeling like uh, everyone's only caring about arena. And I feel that's kind of what a lot of magic players are feeling with the announcements where, you know, we had these great announcements about all this dedication to, um, you know, the pro scene and, you know, contracts and arena tournaments and a million dollar arena tournament at uh, PAX East in Boston and it's all this cool things and people are thinking oh my god they're just going to get rid of paper magic and it's just going to be all arena all the time no I- no 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 <laughs> paper magic not going anywhere I I, yeah. I get that one I get that question a lot which honestly kind of always surprises me because people are just afraid paper magic is going to go away and I think it only comes out of a place of of goodwill because people love paper magic so much that they're afraid mm-hmm. of it going anywhere and I truly, truly, truly want to assure everybody, paper magic is not headed anywhere. We are, I mean, I think the only way, honestly, I think the only way paper magic could really die at this point is like if there was a resource crisis and we couldn't print cards anymore or, you know, like a tsunami hit Seattle or something, like something that took wizards off the map. But, but paper magic is is not going anywhere. Like we We love paper magic. The face-to-face aspect is super important. And in fact, um, in all of our data, the face-to-face aspect is one of the big things Magic has over other games. It's a way to go meet people in store and make friends and go out to events. And that is huge. So please, fear not. Paper Magic is here to stay. 
Excellent. Hopefully that puts people at ease. I know it's been a lot. I know when the first announcements came out, I might not have been uh, the most uh, uh, bright and cheery person. I, I've definitely made my doom and gloom comments, but you know, having time to think about it and seeing where the directions are going, I'm I'm not uh, really worried about the future of magic. I, if anything, I think the future of magic looks even better than before. Um, do you want to dive into some listener questions? You got some time still, Gavin? Yeah, sure. Run? Let's. Do, I am here for you. I got my my oh. mug of cocoa ready to go. Hell yeah! Well, let's let's keep it easy for you. Uh, do you know Halo Top, uh, Gavin? Is that a thing on the West Coast? It's it's that, got a pretty the, big like, out no here. No calorie ice cream or something. Yeah, it's it's huge on the East Coast right now. But they have weird um, ads. Yeah. Really weird ads. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen any of their ads yet. Um, your first question from Chris Glade is: Pack one, pick one of the Halo Top uh, ice cream varieties. You know, I haven't really had much Halo Top. I, I've had it once at a friend's house. And that that's the extent of it. So I don't I'm not I, this draft format is new to me. So here's, here's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to look up all the different uh, kinds and then just on spec tell you which flavor, which flavor I would like. And, I would and, like and then, to go with a uh, blue white. Don't bias me. Don't bias me. I want to want to see if I can come to the right conclusion. Um, I'm going with a uh, blue white flyers. Halo top. That's my favorite fl- all right, let's see what <laughs> flavor. We got here. What am I going to pick out of these? Oh, of course, there's some classics. OK, mint chip. Chocolate, s'mores. Ooh, s'mores is a strong early contender. That one's got more calories per pint. If that makes sense. Um, <laughs> ooh, pistachio. That sounds good. Pancake and waffles. Who are these madmen? <laughs> no calorie pancake and waffles. Well, apparently they're still calories. I don't know. Two hundred eighty calories <laughs> per pint, up to three sixty. Anyway, um, gingerbread house. Oh, these are seasonal. Gingerbread house and pumpkin pie. I'm not gonna pick a seasonal one because that's that's kind of lame. Um, I don't know. The one that I would try the first. I'm always interested in the things that are a little unusual that you can't find other places. So I gravitate toward not the classic flavors, but to some of the more unusual flavors that are listed here. And I would really like to try this chocolate-covered banana. That sounds like it could be really good. Um, Then I would probably try the pancake and waffles next just to fully grasp what is being discussed. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, I, I got nothing. I got nothing on that. Excellent. All right. We'll send this to Halo Top. See if we can get some, uh, some ad revenue out of it. We'll send you a check. Yes. Leaving a legacy (laughs) sponsored by Halo Top. Uh, our first episode actually Halo Top. Do you remember Steak Rion? Yeah, Steak Rion uh, Gavin? podcast. Uh, yeah. The first first episode, yeah. Steak Rion. So we're uh, we're all about the foodie aspects here. So is the name of um, this podcast going to be Ruined Halo Top? <laughs> it can be if you want. <laughs> hey, you you call the shots. I'm all saying angels are thematic for this time of year. So that's true. That's true. Um, Adam has a follow up question. Being a the huge foodie that you are, what's your favorite food? Man, these are the listeners. You don't know this. But these are the questions not on the show notes. Like I've looked through the show notes, I've I've thought a little bit about some of these questions. These are just <laughs> oh, out of yes. out of nowhere. These are the hard hitting the hard hitting ones. Uh, th- these these are the these are the Patreon uh, questions. They uh they they come f- fast and hard with their uh var- variety fair style questions. Oh no, I love it. I love I love these kind of questions. So picking one favorite food is really hard. But I'm going to tell you the thing that I've eaten in like the past month that I want to eat again so badly and can't find anywhere. When I was in South Korea. I had Dok Galbi for the first time, which is just delicious. So the thing about South Korea is, unlike a lot of other Asian countries, they've incorporated cheese into their in some of their cooking, which is hard to find in Japan or China. And so Dok Galbi is like 
chicken and spicy sauce and uh, melted cheese and um, like vegetables all stir fried together. And it was so good. They do it right in front of you. And it's like if you've ever wanted like a stir fried, spicy, cheesy piece of chicken, oh, it's so it's just unbelievable, Doc Galby. And I can't find it anywhere in Seattle, so I got to go on a Doc Galby quest at some point. It was, like, ridiculously good. Nice. Um, up next, we have Blur Your Face <laughs> is his screen name. Um, he asks, uh, what's the best deck in the format and why is it Goblins? I'm going to expand on that. What's your, what's your favorite deck of any, any format? Well, first of all, uh, what's the best deck and why is it Goblins? Because goblins are always good. Like, we just, goblins are sweet. We like making things good that players like to be good. Players like goblins and elves. We make good goblins and elves. Um, can I, uh, can I, real quick on that, in Legacy, I don't know if you know, but the banning of Deathrite Shaman and the printing of uh, Crater, uh, what's the Crater Gob- Crater Maker Goblin? Is that its name? Goblin that Crater right? Maker, maybe? Goblin Crater Maker, yeah. Um, those two changes has brought goblins back to the forefront. Well, yeah, Legacy Goblin Lackey no longer gets, gets blocked by that stupid Deathrite Shaman. Exactly, exactly. I'm seeing goblins all over the place now. It's crazy. But yes, goblins are always awesome. But what what is your favorite uh, favorite deck of any format? I you know, I've been having a lot of fun in standard with this Arclight Phoenix blue red deck. Like it's just it feels like you're playing a legacy deck in standard, which is super cool. You get to like chain a bunch of cantrips together and then bring back your 3 twos. I don't know. I just like how the deck plays out. I think it's really fun. <laughs> Oh man, I'll put it together for you for Legacy next time we're together. Oh, I'd you know, love to play. I've played the modern version and the standard version. I'd love to play that. And then in Popper, I've been playing a bunch of uh, blue black teachings, which I also just adore. So those are both nice. of my favorites right now, I guess. That's awesome. Uh, speaking of actually, Popper uh, making some waves is uh, the Popper Fairies Delver Fairies list is actually seeing play in Legacy now, which is hilarious. They basically just like replace Gush with Force of Will and call it a deck, and wow. it's actually it's actually putting up results at like five would or uh, six would a uh, the challenge on Magic Online a couple weeks ago. It's a powerful deck. I mean, people people say it's the best deck in Popper. Makes sense. It would then translate at least okay to Legacy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, Rich wants to know. Are we ever going to see old border magic cards again? Are we ever going to uh, print some old border, uh, you know, reprints? I don't think it's off the table. I mean, uh, I know you and I were talking at GP Richmond about how a bunch of legacy mm-hmm. players would love to see some only new border cards in old border. And maybe someday we'll mm-hmm. do that. Now, there's some challenges to overcome. And I, I mean, we moved to the new border for a reason, and that generally we think it's the right direction for our game. But I could totally see us at some point in the future releasing more old border promos like the Dark Confidant that we did. Yeah, or oh. the Sword of Fire and Ice. Like, those are beautiful. Right, exactly. So I think we could absolutely do some of those at some point. Awesome. And his uh, follow-up comment is, it was great meeting you at SCG Con and Talking Shop. Oh, so. great. Great meeting you too as well. Thanks for coming down. Sorry that it got snowed out on the third day. That was kind of wild. Yeah, crazy. Um, ooh, uh, Hackbert actually has a great question. Um uh, does play design ever consider doing paired bannings? Example, you can play with Sensei's Divining Top as long as you don't play it in the same deck as Counterbalance or Probe plus Therapy, things like that. Yeah, in the past probably year and a half, I guess I would say, two years since play design really started kicking up, we've talked about a lot of other banning solutions. Because at the end of the day, the whole point of bannings is just to make the format as healthy as possible. And 
if we have to do some weird different stuff, we'll do it. Um, you know, some things we talked about when we did all those standard bannings, um, when you, we talked about restricting Hazaret, um, we talked about <laughs> at the time, there were, I think it was Duress was in the next set or something. We thought Duress would really help uh, f- fix things. So we talked about uh, putting Duress into the format early. You know, we talked about some really, really unusual, unusual stuff. Um, you know, we haven't ever got, done the paired banning thing yet. We've definitely talked about it. There's just a matter of, well, there's kind of two things. The first is it adds confusion because you have to keep in mind all the parameters around deck building that it creates and so on and so forth. But the second is if a card is strong enough to get banned, it's probably strong enough that we that we want it banned from everywhere and we're okay taking the splash damage. Now, there's historically, there's some cases where, where that is probably not true. But in general, I think that is, is pretty true. And in the case of top, like, yes, top without counterbalance is so much weaker. But you know what? The card is still really, really strong. It still slows down tournaments, which is a huge thing of top. So maybe it's right to just get it out of there entirely. Um, so we've considered it. I could definitely see us. If you if you were a time traveler and you told me that sometime in the next two years we did a paired banning, I would totally believe you. It's not out of the question at all. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, next question from Cyrus Corman Gill. Um, we already talked about this. He's t- he actually specifically mentions Night of Autumn and best of one formats and how it affects design for Arena. But uh, one point he makes that we didn't touch on is, um, do you are you afraid that it might limit your design of powerful cards, knowing that best of one is a thing that you know you might accidentally design a card that's too powerful in a best of one setting? Uh, that doesn't really impact us really right now. No, I mean, I think that, you know, we generally don't want to make cards that you just play and then the game is over because you have no answer to them. Like an en- an, en- an enchantment that you play and you're never going to beat unless you have a removal spell is not generally a great play experience. And no, granted, that's part of why cards like Knight of Autumn exist. But no, I don't think that we're too worried about these kind of cards that are only good in best of one or just crippling in best of one, um, as long as we have answers to, like, the artifacts and enchantments and so on. Gotcha. Nice. Um, Austin has a similar question to the banned uh, question, the banned and restricted question, is he wants to know, have they ever? Have you ever tested uh, the feasibility of a mechanic that would limit a card to only one per deck? Kind of like super legendary. <laughs> when we were working on Dominaria... For legendary instance and sorceries, that was actually a thing that we tried, is your deck can only contain one legendary instant or sorcery. Um, so we've investigated it, but, you know, um, I, I, I hate to tell you some dirt, a dirty secret that's going to blow your minds. And please cover your ears if you don't want magic to be ruined for you. But at the end of the day, we are in the business of selling you booster packs and magic cards. And I know, I know it's something we don't think about that much, but it's true. And telling you to not get four copies of a card, especially if these cards are going to be legendary and probably rare or mythic rare is generally not a thing that we want to do, you know? So it makes a lot of sense to, to do that maybe with some fun commons or uncommons or like a single card. Maybe someday we design a card and we're like, yeah, only one copy of this in your deck, but we don't really have a strong impetus to do that. Um, on, on at least on on a wide scale, wide scale basis, and also like, you know, in a format, a competitive format where you play a bunch of one ofs and your one ofs are incredibly strong, it can be really actually less fun for there to be one because the variance is so high 
the player who draws it just wins. We see this with restricted cards sometime, where you're playing Vintage, and it's like, oh, I drew Ancestral, you're just going to lose now. And even though you're both playing your one Ancestral, they just drew it, and because you, there's, you, know, you don't have the four copies to help mitigate that, that fact, um, it's more of a problem. Or in one-on-one commander, um, if you ever play your current commander deck and you're playing one-on-one, not by like French rules, but just by um, normal commander rules, and they draw Sol Ring in their opening hand, there's just like not a great way to catch back up against that. And of course, you don't have four Sol Rings in your deck, you just have one. So um, there's some issues with, with restricted cards that come up. With that said, once again, I wouldn't be surprised if someday we made some individual one-off cards that said you could only play one copy of them in your deck. That's totally a thing I could see happening eventually. Yeah, it's like a, a reverse of, what is it, Relentless Rats, where you can have as many r- copies of this in your deck right, as you want. Right, exactly. Um, if you ever do, please make it a cat and like a very haggard cat surrounded by Relentless Rats. Maybe that's a maybe that's an unset card. <laughs> um, Jasper Gardner Birch, um, make prowess evergreen again. I'm going to expand on that. Uh, any any mechanics that you think uh, would be cool for evergreen, or is the evergreen mechanics kind of set at this point? We're always interested in, in you know, moving around our evergreen mechanics. You know, we made prowess evergreen because we thought it wouldn't be as complicated as it was, and we thought there would be more good designs with it. And it turns out it just wasn't. Like, it was, it was hard to come up with good designs for, and it was a lot more complicated than we thought it was going to be. Um, it was tripping a lot of new players up in our studies. So now ever, it's not gone. Prowess isn't, isn't gone, but it's um, deciduous. Like we'll bring it back into sets where we want to use it. Um, <laughs> is, that an, I lo- is that an actual term, deciduous? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a Rosewaterian uh, term. I, could, I can tell. I love it. <laughs> um, lenticular deciduous. If it's got four more syllables... <laughs> You know, it's a it's a rose water. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we can bring it back into sets as we see fit, sort of in the same way that we use vehicles where we see fit. Not every set has vehicles, but if we want to use it, we can. We didn't use I- prowess, for example, in Guilds of Ravnica because is it is all about instance and sorceries. So those cards carrying about artifacts and planeswalkers or whatever didn't quite feel right to me. Uh, and to the others on the team. But at some point in the future, yeah, we could use prowess again. Um, it's, it's on the table. Mm. Uh, this actually made me think of another kind of related question is making mechanics that aren't keywords into keywords. Like I feel one of the best examples of that is looting. Like looting is not a mechanic, but it's like when I say looting, every magic player knows what I mean because it's so ingrained going back to merfolk looter. Um, you know, any, any plans as far as like making some of these ubiquitous terms into, uh, more, you know, uh, official mechanics? Well, the one we get asked for all the time is mill. And mm, yes, we've tried actually a few times the shadows over Innistrad we tried and this is kind of a double win because one, it gives a keyword action to something we already do a lot, but two mill is a, like writing that out is a lot of words, and we could really shorten up some of our cards if it was an evergreen keyword. The problem with mill is actually we just haven't found a word that we liked yet. Um, <laughs> you hear that, people? Give your suggestions for a mill keyword name if that is all holding us back. <laughs> we've, you know, a lot of people just say, well, why don't you just use mill? But the good, good keywords have names that you can understand if you are not. A magic player that there are ways to help help you understand um, what something does and mill means nothing unless you know millstone with that mm-hmm. said maybe someday we'll keyword it as mill I don't know but it's, it's certainly always a discussion point and maybe 
<laughs> Maybe it'll happen eventually. New players are like, what, do I have to go to the sawmill now? And, you know, <laughs> oh, well. well, maybe maybe one day. Um, speaking of things that you have no control over, Justin Perry wants to know, can we have force of will in modern yet? No. <laughs> no. Next question. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> force of will is a card for legacy. I don't think you're going to see it in modern. I could easily see us making some very strong variants of it for modern. But the literal card, we're going to leave it back in the legacy time frame. And to me, that's a, like, Force of Will is such an emblematic legacy card. I like leaving it in that format. The same way I like leaving Brainstorm in that format. And there are certain cards that kind of differentiate what a format is. And a big thing that makes legacy and modern feel different to me are Brainstorm and Force of Will. So leaving those over in legacy land are really important. Definitely. Uh, Brayden Defoe, we got MTG in our D&D. When can we expect D&D in our MTG? Hopefully soon. I I want to. I would love to mix and match the two. You know, I think that when I got to Wizards, that was one of my first questions. And at the time, there there was a lot of resilience. Like, the two had to be separate. You can never mix and match the two. And then we got a new CEO a couple years ago, and he had some different ideas, Chris Cox. And yep. this was kind of our first step toward it, was trying this thing out of this D&D, um, D&D book, uh, this Magic Ravnica D&D book. And that went over really well. It sold super well. Um, and, you know, there's lots of live streaming going on with it. We see that there's a lot of fertile ground for a crossover. And I think we could absolutely someday do a Magic D&D set. Just it's all a matter of time. I feel the crossover in the player base is also huge. So my DM from the group that I actually play with Pat with are uh, the natural ones, our other podcast. Um, literally, the book came out and our DM sent us a picture of him in line buying it like as the book was released. Um, and I always see like I watch like little things like YouTube streamers and things like that. Like one of my favorite things is on YouTube, the different animators who will like animate their Dungeons and Dragons adventures. And I one thing I always notice is whenever there's like cards that come up and they're playing a card game they always animate it to look like magic cards because obviously you know these people who are really into dungeons and dragons it makes sense that they're also really into magic as well yeah the, you know there are some problems to solve like one is for example DD is like a collaborative game where mm-hmm. uh magic is a competitive game so you know <laughs> if if you think dungeon and dragon is a collaborative game you have not played with me and pat well we fair constantly enough. try to kill each other fair enough um so you know there's some stuff to figure out there maybe it's more of an arch enemy style experience we've got like the dm versus the players or something you know but Ooh, yeah, someday be cool. someday i think you'll see that happen who knows that'd be sweet actually i like that idea arch enemy dm i'm full of great ideas so man you should you should like work for wizards and design or something <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can tell if I've about this one a lot. Cause I want to make it. I want to make this someday. Just you know, I think we have to wait till the time is right, and someday the time will be right, and that that door is opening more and more as we do more kind of melding of the two brands. So someday it'll happen, just not quite yet. Nice, uh, John Kerman. He says, "Sup." Uh, Sup also. <laughs> <laughs> also, can we expect a similar type of legacy reprints and new cards in a Battle Bond style set in the coming year slash next supplemental set? Well, I mean, as the lead designer of Battle Bond, I think, I think the set did really well, which I mentioned earlier, was reprinting all those yeah. legacy cards. So yeah. if I was to lead design another one of these innovation draft sets, I would absolutely look for legacy cards to put in it. Excellent. I I feel good about that answer, John. I hope you do too. <laughs> so I guess stay tuned um, is all I'm saying there. 
Nice. Uh, Bob Champy, this is actually a cool point because it's something I see a lot in other games. So another game that I'm really into is EVE Online. And what they do is they have the Council of Interstellar Management where they basically bring players in um, to get their feedback uh, on a regular basis. That is quite the name, the Council of Interstellar Management. Yes. Well, it's a space themed game, so it's C- a space CIM <laughs> for short, I guess. Or yes. Or Coim. I mean, uh, no, C- I mean, I, it's cool. It's actually yeah, CSM is what they shorten it to. I mean, it's cool. Um, it's a sweet name, but that is quite the title to have. Like that barely fits on a business card, you know. I know, right? Well, it's they. they so the company's based in Iceland, and they yeah. actually fly the players from all over the world in to have meetings with the uh, research and design group to talk about the development of the game from the player experience. And I think that's a really cool thing that game does because it gets that like ground level, like like frontline experience and, you know, showing that to the designers. So even if the designers play the game, you know, they're kind of somewhat removed and just seeing it from a different perspective. But I'm taking over Bob's question. He asked, has Watsi ever considered getting the legacy community involved uh, with the banded restricted lists of the format? Um, as in either inviting MTGO players to a meeting or a paper event winners to discuss the pros and cons of the format. I'll expand that out for you for just kind of any format, not just specifically legacy. Well, you know, we actually do this. We have a number of pros that we talk with. We have open communication lines with about ban restricted announcements and health of the format. We bring them in the building sometimes. So that's actually a pretty active thing that we do. I mean, it's not like super public because only a small (laughs) number of people do it, you know, but, um, there's people who come in and, you know, will r- tell us all stuff about a format or send us email thoughts on a format or so on and so forth. And legacy is something that they do discuss and do give feedback on. So we take all that into account when making our decisions. That's it. I feel what, uh, Wizards should make that more public because I feel that's something that players would, would ease a lot of their fears knowing that Watsi. Because I think a lot of people have this erroneous perception that Wizards of the Coast is this ivory tower that doesn't listen to the players. Though I know anyone who actually talks to anyone who listen, uh, works at Wizards like yourself knows that's completely not true. But I do feel that uh, for a lot of people that aren't really as dialed in, um, have that, that uh, in per, you know, that. What am I trying to say? They have that that uh, concept in their minds that uh, you know their their thoughts aren't being listened to. Well, and yeah, as I said earlier, they really all are, and I, I can't I can't stress that enough yeah. that we are paying attention to everything you all ask for. So thank you for all your constant feedback. We all really appreciate it. Yeah, listen up, people. Wizards is listening. So also be nice. Some of the comments I see are real mean. Be nice, people. <laughs> yeah, you used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, up next, Corey Roth. So if the power nine represents some of the most objectively powerful cards in the entire game, I would be interested to know what cards would make up the Mr. Verhey's, uh, personal sour nine, a lineup of cards that are so underpowered, overcosted, or narrow that they have likely never been included in any deck ever. I mean, you got some great hits, right? You got <laughs> Zephyr spirit, you got sorrows path, you've got, um, uh, Mist Moon Mesa, whatever that thing's called. That um, Pale Moon, One with Nothing. I mean, I, I, I could go on, but you, you get the idea. One with, one with Nothing is actually cool, though, because One with Nothing feels like it could be broken if you just found the right That's why I think it. One with Nothing is a, actually secretly a very well-designed card, because it's a mm-hmm. horrible magic card that gives people dreams, which is you can't say about a lot of cards. Like, you look at Chimney, but you're just like, yeah, that card sucks. Although I did build a combo deck around Chimney Up once. Um, but one with nothing is like, oh, but but what about this narrow situation? Like it could be good then, you know? And 
and you know, bless Adam Prozac's heart for playing it in a pro tour once, and people have just always latched onto that since he played it in the pro tour where the Owling Mind deck was popular. You know, um, so. <laughs> Uh, that's a, a well-designed bad magic card. It's still really bad, though. So, <laughs> uh, For me, I remember because it's like one of the first ever cards I opened up in a booster pack, and it was in Odyssey Mudhole. Yeah, Mudhole's not I remember- great. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I remember opening Mudhole and almost quitting magic at that right then and there because I'm like, what the hell is this card? For those who don't know, Mudhole is an instant for two and a red. This costs three mana. Three mana, target player exiles all land cards in his or her graveyard from the game. But on the flip side, man, have you ever brought it in against lands? Because I'm, uh, I'm sure it's not good. But can you just imagine the look on their face when you beat them with mud hole? Like they're like dredging away and got their whole glacial chasm engine set up or whatever, and they're just like, all right, in response to or you know draw step life from the loom dredges, time to mud hole you. Like the look on their face mud would be hole. so priceless. <laughs> the look of utter confusion and disgust. <laughs> I, I, I live for those moments. I live for those moments. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> Justin, once again, with the questions you can't answer, can Popper have its own paper banned and restricted list? Uh, I don't even I don't even know how I could comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard from players that they like Popper. Clearly, um, it's a bit there's a big force behind it. It's something we know that's being asked for, and we're looking into it. So that's all I can really say at this point in time, but stay tuned. Sweet. Uh, Yannick is super pumped to have you on uh, the episode. He lo- he says he loves these episodes, and he gave us a bunch of cool questions and told us to pick and choose. Um, let's see. What is some good ones? Any cool stories about an upcoming conspiracy set, if you can share any? Well, that's a that's a nice way to get me to try and confirm this upcoming <laughs> yeah. conspiracy set. It's sort of like I remember I was working on Theros, or we had announced Theros, and someone asked me, well, given that Minotaurs are in the set, what about X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, actually, we haven't confirmed Minotaurs are in the set yet, so I can't talk anything about this. Ooh, I mean, tricky. you know. That, that must keep you on the edge of your seat, like being like, what have we announced yet? What have we not announced yet? Like, yeah, I yeah, would yeah. get tripped up I have to keep a pretty running tally in my head of not just announcements, but also like, what anyone has said like okay what has mark rosewater said on his blog you know like what what, i gotta keep all that stuff in my head so i know i'm not accidentally stepping into a territory that would give too much away Mm -hmm. right Uh, as far as you know fun stories from upcoming sets i have a lot of them but you'll just have to have me back on next year so i can tell you about some of them i guess (laughs) that's true that's true um i'm gonna let's see what are some other good ones uh when are we going to vrin jace's home plane you know, people have asked for Vryn a lot. And when it was made originally, it was not made really to be a world that we would do a full plane of. Because it's kind of, I mean, if you think about the world building of Vryn, it's pretty one note. Like, there's there's not a lot to latch on to just with the cards that, that you saw. But then we wrote a story about it and talked about Vryn, you know, being Jason's home world and some of the history of it. And people started to like it a little bit. And it's so mysterious that I think maybe someday you will see Vryn. When? Well, just uh, just keep keep being patient. You know, I think I like to say is if players like something, we will do it eventually. You just have to give us time because from my perspective, Magic has years and years and years and years and years left in it. You know, 50, 100 years, who knows, maybe more than that. 
So if you like it, we'll do it eventually, but you just got to be patient and wait for it. So Vryn, absolutely, I think we'll get there. Win, couldn't tell you. Mm. Actually, I'm interested in your perspective on this. So when I think of Vryn, from what I know about Vryn, I think of it as this kind of like high technology plane. Um, and I almost feel like if we did go to Vryn, it would be a good setting for uh, magic to dip its toes into the sci-fi genre. And I know that's pretty controversial because some people feel that sci-fi has no place in magic. It should stay in the high fantasy area. How do you feel on that? Well, and that's what I mean about, you know, Vryn being so ill-defined in that it could very well be this science fiction world. But also if you read the stories, there's like a lot of trading and trade embargoes happening. And I could easily see it being like a political world. Or I could see it being like a a Western-style world with what's been written about a little bit. So there's so many things I've been talked about for Vryn that there's a, a whole canvas we could paint upon so we've got a ton of options and if we want to go there some someday we might just combine an idea we have and like with the Vryn world so once again stay tuned nice uh what about uh sci- the science fiction aspect of magic do you feel science fiction has any place in magic or should it be kept to the fantasy setting so as a big science fiction fan i would love to see magic do science fiction eventually i think it's important though that it's done in a magic-y way i mean i don't want to see spaceships cruising through space and you know it being about visiting other planets necessarily but sign of kind of like you know a little more high tech than Mirrodin like think lightsabers think Mm -hmm. um you know cyberpunk style stuff like that could be really really cool that kind of science fiction yeah almost kind of like uh the is it in Ravnica Uh, I feel that's like the closest we've gotten to sci-fi yeah imagine if you had like you know is it from Ravnica or Mirrodin or Phyrexia but like up a notch right where everyone has access to that stuff and there's computers and things like that or whatever magic's version of a computer is I think that could be pretty cool yeah it's almost uh like they talk about this with uh the designing of uh like the Thor movies is like sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right, right, exactly, exactly, right? It's this it's this old-timey society that's actually built upon this incredible technology. Right, and I feel that is, that's a cool design area that magic could actually, you know, fuse science, science fiction and the magic genre with, you know, technology that's so advanced you can't tell it apart from magic. Um, so another cool one. Uh, actually, I'm I'm wondering about this because this was actually hinted about in the Dominaria stories uh, with uh, when Karn made his appearance. Uh, going back to New Phyrexia, what's going on on New Phyrexia? We haven't been there for a while. Uh, that's a long time for the Phyrexians to kind of build up their forces. It certainly is, isn't it? <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. You, you know, once again, <laughs> as I said. If players like something, and oh boy, do they love Phyrexians, we will absolutely get back to it. Just all takes time. So, you know, Magic Story moves so slowly. And now it moves slightly faster that we're doing these three big sets a year. But, I mean, it just moves so slowly. We tell, I think it was best described to me once by Doug Beyer, maybe, who, who said that we tell about a sentence a set. That's the amount of story we get to tell a set. So imagine if you're writing a book about something, and you get one sentence every four months to tell your tell your fans what's going on it's going to move really really slowly so we're are we going to get back to phyrexia absolutely but just it's all going to take time so i mean i hate that my answer is so often stay tuned but that's exactly what i'm talking about where it's like i see the next seven plus years of magic in front of me i know you guys are going to get a lot of cool stuff that you like just stay tuned and it might not be in the next seven years it might be in the seven years after that but phyrexians absolutely they're on the table 
Hell yeah. They're my favorite villain in, in the history of magic. I think because Mirrodin was my bookends of magic, I uh, stopped playing uh, magic right after first Mirrodin came out. Uh, and I started back up again when we went back to Mirrodin. So Mirrodin will always have a special place in my heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved the Mirrodin set too. It's just fun um, to build all these decks and have, you know, because of all the artifacts running around and find these themes. Um, I think the, the world building is actually really cool and how it's evolved over time. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, artifact sets get us every single time. So um, got to be careful with it next time. Nice. Um, Yannick wants to know uh, about some cool design stories. We talked a little bit about a, Assassin's Trophy, but any other cool stories from uh, R&D, maybe about like Liliana, The Last Hope, or Walking Ballista, Legion Warboss, etc. Legion Warboss... Is, is kind of a fun one in that it stuck all the way through from early vision design through the entire set. And it's pretty rare for that to happen with a card. And we really like the callback to Goblin Rabble Master, which, of course, is quite inspired by. And, yeah, we, we thought it was a great design, so we left it left it all the way through. Um, Liliana of the Last Hope, Planeswalkers are always really hard to design, so that one went through a ton of iteration. And as you can tell by the card, there are so many knobs on that card to tune, like... Minus two, minus one, for example, is such like a specific number combination. You can tell we went through <laughs> a lot to get there. How many cards do you mill? All that kind of stuff was just iterated on over and over and over again. Um, walking Ballista was kind of inspired by Hangerback Walker. So we had Hangerback Walker in Magic Origins when we were kind of previewing Kaladesh to people. And... When we went back to Kaladesh block, we thought, okay, well, we should do another XX artifact creature to throw back to Walking Ballista, or to throw back to Hangerback Walker, rather. And that's kind of where Walking Ballista came from. You'll, even, even as walking in the name, right? Hangerback Walker, Walking Ballista, as kind of a connection between the two. So those are some fun stories about those three cards. Nice. I liked with uh, Legion War Boss that if you, you could actually follow it back through the Ravnica blocks, um, like original Ravnica, there's uh, Boros Recruit. And then in um, uh, Return to Ravnica, I forgot the name of, but it was another goblin in the Boros Legion um, that has, like, the same outfit on as uh, Legion Warboss. Yeah, there's uh, there, there's some fun little Easter eggs we tossed in the set, and you might even see some more of them play out as the block goes on. So I don't want to ruin those Easter eggs yet, but just, just keep looking, <laughs> keep looking. Keep looking, keep an eye out. Um any other time spiral mashup card stories? <laughs> you really liked those last time. I mean, every card in time spiral is a mashup card story if you know where to look. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, let me just pull up, pull up time spiral here. Keep it. Keep in mind, by the way, that I had nothing to do with time spiral. I was I was a player at this point. So all the stories I know are things that that have happened uh, or that I've been told. Um, so Time Spiral to me is a wild set, not just because it's packed full of references. The whole block is packed full of references. But because there are so many references that even me, 10-plus years later, I am still finding new references to things that I didn't know existed. So this might interest you. I learned just last month that Porphyry nodes, anagrams to have drop and honey. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, did you know that? <laughs> Did, no. you, did you know this? I, I believe it's anagrams, the honey drops, or something like that, um, which is insane. I'm still learning new things. Like, I knew about Ridge Kusite, 
which anagrams to Guided Strike. It's a spell shaker, spell shaper that um, taps to cast a card Guided Strike. I had no idea about Porphyrinos with that. So there's a fun little, fun little weird thing. It's not really a mashup, but man, is that a time spiralism at its finest right there. That's perfect. <laughs> just that set's full of just look through the set. It's got so many wonky tonk cards that are just mashups of total nonsense. I love it. I love the set to death. It's delightful. I feel Time Spiral is if you like showed a robot all the magic sets and then had the robot design its own magic right. set, it's, it would design something close to Time it's Spiral. It's the original Robo Rosewater. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the 2004 design team or whatever. <laughs> uh, Andrew Black, uh, <laughs> speaking of things that you can't talk about, when are Slivers coming back? You know, we actually talked about Slivers for Dominaria. Yeah, that was a big thing. I remember everyone was a little sad that Slivers didn't get make the cut to Dominaria. Yeah, we talked about for Dominaria, but, you know, Dominaria had enough other things going on, and we kind of felt like, hey, it's the return of this beloved world. We have these stories we want to tell with these legends. Let's not also throw Slivers in the mix. But next time we do Dominaria, I think there's a reasonable chance you'd see Slivers again. And maybe you'll see them some other time in, in the meantime. It's been a, a while since we've done them. We know the players like them. And they can kind of show up anywhere. So you'll see them again. And, and don't worry, when you see them again, I'm sure they're not going to have the M14 look that players didn't really enjoy. In fact, we rolled that back when we made M15. So yeah. So uh, um, don't worry about that. You will likely still see the one-sidedness of the Slivers, though, because we do think that does just play better to only affect your own Slivers. Yeah, I did. I did like the one sidedness, but yeah, I feel slivers are almost a large enough theme and beloved enough that they could probably even just make up their own set. Um, you know, have a set themed around slivers or like the sliver. Well, I guess the sliver homeworld is Volrath, right? Who I'm knows? Not, I'm not. Slivers are all over the place. Could could be anywhere by now. Oh, is that is that not confirmed? I I, I guess yeah. I don't know my lore that well. Well, you know, um, I mean, it's possible you got the idea from somewhere else. Hmm, that's true. That is true. Um, and the follow-up question is, what is your favorite cu- creature type? I've always been partial to fairy because blue-black fairies was a deck that really, really put me on the map, and I love playing that deck. So fairy is one of my favorites. I I just love it. Nice. Awesome. Although, of course, you know, throw out to brushwag. Everyone, lo- everyone <laughs> loves a good brushwag. <laughs> Definitely. Always, always. I mean, Kavu is one of my favorite creature types. I want more Kavus. If you can throw a couple of those in there, uh, that would be great. Yeah, we, we know we got one or two into Dominaria. And uh, when we yep. come back, you'll probably see some more. Hell yeah. Um, up next, let's. I like this one. Anton finishing it off with a great question. Um, what is the best change to a card that you have ever made, either increasing the power level or decreasing the power Ooh, level? Ooh, that is a great question. That is a really, really good question. The best change to a card that I ever made. Okay. Um, so when I was working on... So, so it's not a specific um, card that got printed... But I'll explain, I'll explain what I mean in a second. And maybe this will answer your question, maybe it won't. But when I was working on Battle Bond, when the set was handed off to me, it had this mechanic called Dramatic Entrance. And the way the Dramatic Entrance worked was that when you cast a Dramatic Entrance card, target player could pay a cost, and if they did, you got uh, upgraded. So it was basically a kicker that anybody could pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and this mechanic had a number of problems um, because... People were people would not leave the right amount of mana up, and you never really wanted to play it unkicked, and there's all this stuff going on. 
And so I was working with Kelly Diggs, and one day I, I made a card with dramatic entrance that also had the line of text, um, this card's mana cost can be paid by the other player too. And because of that one card, which we tested and players really liked, it inspired the entire assist mechanic. And we ended up changing from dramatic entrance to assist. And players Ooh. loved how assist turned out. I think it was a huge, huge boon for that set to have that mechanic. And so mm. this one tweak inspired a whole new mechanic. And actually, that's true for a lot of cards. There's a lot of cards in sets that end up going on to inspire entire mechanics. So um, that, that's an example of a small tweak I made to a card that made a huge difference and a huge impact. Awesome. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, other cards not on the uh, the list are changing Deathrite Shaman from a 1-1 one, one to a 1-2. Oh, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I had to get that dig in there. Sorry. I, hey, hey, the one I submitted was two mana in my defense. It was two mana to cast. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. It's, it's banned now. The demon is dead. <laughs> Ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> uh, I couldn't. I couldn't let that go. <laughs> hey, hey! I make powerful. I mean, a reflector mage. I designed as a two-two, and it got bumped up to a two-three. I mean, all kinds of of things have been done on my behalf. <laughs> uh, it's okay. We love you. We love you, anyways, Gavin. <laughs> well, you know, every designer has their successes and their failures. Definitely, definitely. Well, I definitely think you have way more successes than you have failures. Um, I loved Magic in 2018 between Dominaria and Battle Bond and Ravnica and the Dragons and M19. I I had a ton of fun this year, and I'm really looking forward to Magic in 2019. Yeah, 2018 was great, and 2019 has some stuff that will really blow your socks off. I mean, Milk, that set is just out of this world bananas. Um the rest of Ravnica, Ravnica Legions is great. Archery, our codename for this set in the fall, has some really cool stuff lined up. Um, there's, and then, of course, there's some great stuff in between. So stay tuned. There's some things I can't even talk about yet that are happening in 2019 that I think you're really going to love. In fact, actually, maybe the thing I am most excited about in 2019, I can't even tell you anything about yet. So, oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, you think I'm excited for some of the stuff I was talking about today. There's something that is so secret, I can't even tell you why it's secret that uh, you should say <laughs> oh, that, that's how you know it's a real secret <laughs> awesome but i, I will you, when it's announced you'll probably know what i'm talking about oh boy uh, now i'm going to be speculating i'm uh, man i i can't even begin to think about what it would be but i'm looking forward to it uh awesome any anything else you wanted to talk about anything else uh yeah you, you had on your mind before we wrap up here you know all i want to say is thank all of you for a great year of magic i really feel like 2018 was kind of the year of the fan in a way. Like we brought in a ton of people through Dominaria. We went back to core sets. We launched with Ravnica, a beloved world. And it was all of your feedback that really made a lot of this stuff possible, whether bringing you in through Battlebond or Commander or Guilds of Ravnica or Dominaria or any of these other sets. It really, really means a lot to go out to all these events and meet you all and talk with you all and hear about how much fun you're having with the game. So thank you for all of your continued feedback. And check out what 2019 has in store. Happy holidays, everyone.